Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Chad Sirwick Hughes. Chad holds a bachelor's in music composition from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and a master of music degree from Kansas State University. He completed a PhD in composition and orchestral conducting from Louisiana State University. His compositions and arrangements have been performed by ensembles such as the Cleveland Chamber Symphony, Indianapolis Pop Symphony, University of Memphis, Atlanta University, among others. Dr. Hughes is currently the director of bands at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, where he also teaches the history of jazz, orchestration, trombone, and improvisation. Chad Hughes, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you for having me, sir. It was wonderful to be here. All right. Well, there was one other thing on your bio that I wanted to ask about. So I read that your novical soundtrack, A Tale of Two Fools, reached number one in the UK Soul Charts and number two on the UK Sweet Rhythms Chart. Now, the term novical was novel to me. So I read about it on your website, but could you tell our listeners about what the term novical means and about this project? Absolutely. So as a composer, you know, we, uh, this is, this is, well, hopefully I won't be too loquacious, (laughs) but um, so we know from the German tradition about great artwork, you know, all come, you know, coming together. And so when I was an undergrad, I started writing what I thought was going to be an operetta. I was, I had learned about West Side Story for the first time. And I said, this is wonderful. You know, then I learned about the rain cycle, you know, so I was like, man, I'm going to write me a, I'm going to write me an operetta, you know, because West Side Story just spoke to me as soon as I heard it. I said, this is, the greatest thing ever. But what I did know in my youth that you're supposed to write the libretto first <laughs> you know, or write the story first, then you write the music. So I wrote all this music. I mean, I might have written probably at least a 30, at least 30 minutes worth of music already. But I was trying to make it fit a story and no one ever said write the story first. So it just didn't click to me. So um so I just let it sit for a while. And then I'll never forget Dr. William Thomason, who teaches in New York, said, Chad, you gotta finish it. And so the same thing as another friend of mine, Jay Berkeley. So um, when I got to my doctorate at LSU, mind you, I had already been teaching uh, public school for a while in the, in the city of Detroit and in uh, Topeka, Kansas. And and one cool thing is, you know, when you go back to school, because actually I did my master's and doctorate back to back, you get to okay. study and develop your craft. And so I was just learning about all this other music in depth that I really just didn't know about. Like, I really just sat and learned about Mendelssohn and his music. And I was just like, oh my goodness, this guy's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, more about Wagner, you know, even though he's bipolar and he's crazy as heck, but his music was just wonderful. And so, I said, I was trying to figure out, um, I got the urge to come up with a concept album, which coming from Detroit, you know, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, mm-hmm. some of the, one of the more progenitors of, of concept albums, especially in the, 
is a black music tradition. Yeah. So uh, one would argue uh, Sgt. Peppers was probably the first one commercially. Um, but then next would be Marvin Gaye, who showed Stevie Wonder. And of course, the 70s Stevie Wonder's albums was just like amazing. So after I was going to make my next album, I hadn't released an album in about seven years at this time. And I said, well, let me just pick up the story because I'll never forget how Bill encouraged me to finish writing the, the opera, which was a call to tell two fools. So, and actually I wrote the song Daddy's Little Girl first. That was the first one. And then uh, actually I wrote Daddy's Little Girl and the overture first, but hadn't wrote the rest of the music. So that I was just young and crazy, right? Who does that? So, <laughs> uh, so anyway, to make it this extremely long story as short as possible, I finally sat down and wrote a, a treatment for it, basically. And what the goal was to do is when you buy the CD, is was you have the story and the answer, and you can read the story, and then you hear the music. And it was it kept getting longer and longer. And as you know, if you make CDs, the more pages you put in there, the more it costs. Right. And it was getting ridiculous. It was getting like five or six pages. And then finally, my friend LaKendra Parker said, why don't you just write the whole story? So I said, oh, okay. So I just sat and wrote a story about a trumpet player who falls in love with a business major, but she's thinking about her ex-fiance. And I tied it in with the great Adolf Herseff retiring from the Chicago Symphony. Um, that's how I came up with the timeline that started in 2004. That it's like, oh man, the great one's retiring. It's gonna open up, I need to win. So that's his senior year passion. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I was writing and I was trying to figure out the best genre to fit. And as you know, as a composer, sometimes we either try to fit something in or we had to come up with our own. You know, if you write a sonata, it has to, you know, a lot of it has to be this way. A fugue has specific rules. You have to at least have an answer to make it a fugue. Um, uh, you know, oratorio is religious music, you know, but what separates that from a cantata, you know? So I was trying to figure out how does this work and nothing really fit because I had the jazz part in it, but no one performs grand musicals anymore. Like you're not going to get an 80 piece orchestra. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to cut off that. Like, I want an orchestra. Uh, I didn't want six keyboards in the pit. It doesn't really fit opera because opera generally is an amplifier unless you're in the Hollywood Bowl. So I just say, well, I wrote a novel and I got music. Hmm. Novel, musical. Hmm. Okay, novical. That's what I came up with. So a novical is, is a story with a musical soundtrack. So is there an actual book? There is an actual book called Tell Two Fools. Shout out to Kendall where you can buy it or order the hard copies online at sirwickmusic.com. How, yeah. how long did the story end up being? Uh, 25 chapters, roughly, you know, um, how many pages in it? 300 and some pages, I think. Wow. Yeah, a, a, a little bit bigger than a five to six page insert for a CD, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I thought I placed a copyright over here. Um, let's see here. Actually, I do have a copyright here. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not three hundred pages. I could be lying. Maybe it's less than that. Yeah, I think it's a, maybe it's a hundred pages. Let's see here. Oh, it's. Oh, you know what? As far as pure text, it is 
So which two characters yeah. are the two fools? <laughs> That's the read about. <laughs> All right. So the Tale of Two Fools takes place in Detroit, and that's where you grew up, right? Yes, sir. So what was your music education like in Detroit? What were you doing as you so were growing up? Really, my biggest, in- two, three of my biggest influences growing up before I went to high school were my dad, his sister, and my cousin, Royce. Uh, so my dad loved music. You know, he loved music. My dad worked, I get my work ethic for him because my father and my grandfather had the most impeccable work ethic of a man you could possibly have. They, the type they go to work every day, never take, never take the day off. Like in 30 years, I never remember my dad taking a day off. I think it's up when his, uh, he took a day off for his great grandmother, well, his grandmother's, um, birthday party. It was her 90th birthday party. I remember her, him taking a day off then, but never takes a day off. Um, but he loved music. His record collection was immense. Um, and so my aunt also had the exact same records he had, if not more. And so music will always be playing in the house. Um, at the time before my aunt left Detroit to move to Ohio, um, she was at my grandparents' house, and the, um, there were two record players in the house. It was a big, I don't know if you remember how our grandparents had those big old wood, long oh, yeah. record players with the built-in stereo. Uh, they were just huge. So my grandmother had that one, but then my aunt had the hi-fi one. And mm-hmm. even as a little kid, she would let me, at two or three years old, handle her records. Now, when I was really, really young, she used to let me put them on, but she would supervise me because, you know, we could scratch the needle. You must have right. <laughs> So, but by the time I got five, I was good because she taught me how to put the, you remember the brush with the cream you had to put on the record? <laughs> so I was always playing albums like all day and I would just sit there. And that's actually how I learned how to read also, in addition to reading my mother's um, uh, interior design magazine. I was just fascinated with the credits. Like, oh, that's a trumpet and that's a trombone. Uh, and so I was just listening to that. So that was kind of like my informal education. And then my cousin Royce was the um, was the choir director at my church. So I was just always fascinated by him. Like he just, he could move his hands and we just knew how to follow him. And so that was a really uh, inspirational. So that was the choir sound. But I was like the worst singer in the choir. <laughs> by far i think the only reason why he let me there because i was his cousin um and i knew the songs and i could kind of match pitch but the, the timbre was terrible <laughs> um you were a trombone they're actually better singers than me um so that was growing up that was my musical influence so grover washington jr was one of the my favorite uh instrumentalists growing up uh, and so I would just always listen to his albums. And so I wanted to learn saxophone, but my school didn't have saxophone. So I picked up a trumpet and I could never get a good embouchure. So I switched to euphonium and been playing it ever since. Very nice. That's what I played in high school as well. And then when I got to high school, of course, the, still the biggest influence on my life, even after his death from my band director, Benjamin uh, L. Pruitt, uh, and just his knowledge 
so the same thing with conductor. He was just a fabulous conductor, but just knew a lot of music. And I was just blown away uh, by everything at his teaching. Just a humble man, never raised. I think I heard him raise his voice twice in four years. Wow. And just really set a pathway for me musically. And so because of his indirect advice, that's how I wound up choosing Michigan. Very so nice. basically all the teaching, 90% of my pedagogy, pretty much outside of composition, comes from my high school band director. Oh, what a, what a great influence to have. Mm-hmm. So because of your upbringing, I think you have a, a great potential to switch between genres. You know, you, you can easily switch into jazz or, or orchestral or uh, concert band. You know, what is your favorite style of music to play? You know what? I love all three equally. And I just, someone asked me that the other day, like I can listen, I can go a whole week and listen to cl- and classical music and not complain. And then the next two weeks I'll listen to jazz. But then the next two weeks I'll listen to uh, R&B or gospel. So it's, it's like when you grow up in a, if a kid speaks, there's some kids that can actually grow that have grown up speaking in three languages. Mm-hmm. because they learn English at the school, but they come home and their kids are, they might speak, I don't know, Spanish at home, but grandmother is from Italian. So they learn Italian from the grandmother and they just speak all three well, because they don't really know that that's not normal per se. <laughs> so for me, it when you grow up in that type of household where music's always playing, you know, or you go and you go see Star Wars, which pretty much is, encourage anybody who's a composer right now has been influenced by Star Wars by some form of fact. <laughs> so when you grow up with Star Wars, when you grow up with Motown, but then you also grow up with Basie, you grow up with James Cleveland, you know, Walter Harkins, those gospel greats, you you don't really separate the three because you love all three equally. Yeah. Well, a different question. What is your favorite style to compose in? Oh, look at that it's a slick question. I love it. <laughs> um, I'll say this. I love going back and forth between classical and jazz, though. It's but it's a different kick for each mm-hmm. of them. Because it's, you know, one hand when you see a 110-piece orchestra playing your music, you just like. But then when you go to the club and they're playing one of your jazz tunes or you hear one of your R&B songs on the radio, so they, they promote, they invoke different emotions out of me. Yeah. So that that's that's a great question. Um, you know, because I, I love hearing my fuse being played, but at the same time, sometimes I just want to hear a drum beat. <laughs> and call. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really... I can't say I love one more than the other. It just evokes a different feeling. It's like sure. if you have more than one kid, you know, well, some people love one kid more than the other. But <laughs> <laughs> generally speaking, you know, I look at all as like my compositions are all as my children. And so I don't really, they just, they just provoke a different mood for me at any given time. Yeah. So let me ask about your nickname or your stage name, Sir Wick. Where did that come from? Uh, my, one of my crazy band directors in high school. So I had two band directors in high school. I had, uh, 
Mr. Pruitt was my jazz band and symphonic band director. Miss Allen was my concert band and marching band director. So between her, my heart teacher, and my second mother, Miss um, Ross, who's a fab, Patricia Terry Ross, whose heart extraordinaire, uh, played on Motown, D DSO, Detroit Opera uh, Theater Orchestra, uh, Michigan Opera Theater Orchestra, excuse me. Um, just, she used to call me Sir Chaddius, and still to this day, she, she calls me Sir Chaddius. So then, like my, I shouldn't say second, my, actually my third, I had three women that were influential in raising me. Um, my third mother, excuse me, um, used to call me Sir Chadwick. And then, well, somehow Sir Wick just kind of came out of her mouth one day. <laughs> and her son, who I call my brother Brad, ironically, told Miss Alex, uh, who was trying to figure out a name, She's like, we need a nickname for you. And he said, well, my mother calls him Sir Chadwick. And she was just like, Wick. We gonna call you Wick from here on out. And so the name just stuck. So everyone in high school, if you say Sir Wick, that's what they know me as. Of course, they know my name is Chad too, but there's definitely more than one Chad in my high school that had 4,000 people. But there was only one Sir Wick. There you go. <laughs> that's how they knew me. All right, so I want to I want to ask about your your higher education, not necessarily who you were studying with. I was just fascinated because your higher education journey seems to have taken you further and further south. You know, started in Michigan, then to Kansas, then down to Louisiana. So as you traveled south, did you find a difference in the style of composition that you were studying, or perhaps different priorities of what was important? Oh, priorities. That's a great point. So. The biggest difference for Michigan in most places is that Michigan had seven, eight composition teachers. So everybody was unique in their way, but it, no one really tried to get you to do their style. Most of them were really about a technique, a specific technique that they said we have to see in your composition. And the biggest person really that influenced me in that was uh, James Aikman. And I call I, I love that man still to this day. I, it's really not, anytime I write anything, I call him. He's like my go-to guy. Matter of fact, I look, I look at his house as the Copeland house. Um, I, like I hope if it wasn't for COVID, I'd probably be right now composing. Uh -huh. But he really instilled in me, actually what I wrote my dissertation on, which is called the pole technique, which stands for principle of limited economy. And I know you're very familiar with that. We're just taking a limited amount of information and develop that motive as far as you possibly can. And if no matter, and if you think you went far, go farther. So, I mean, he drilled that in me. And those two years of studying with him are the by far the most influential. Like I would, I could not, I would not be here before you if it wasn't for Jay's Anchor. Hmm. And that's why I said about my pedagogy. Ben Pruitt laid the groundwork for my musicianship and how to teach band both jazz and classical. That's the other thing too. He was the jazz band director and the and the symphonic band director. So he would go from uh, conducting a, a Tchaikovsky transcription or Granger and host, and then two hours later, we're playing Duke and Basie. And we played them both well. So me seeing that kind of, that's why it's hard for me to bifurcate the two because in high school I was doing the same. 
So right. that musician led me to Michigan. And then when I got to James Aikman, he was a strickler on economy. Like it, it, it wasn't even arguable. And what's funny is he used to get on me about writing chamber music. And I was like, that's not my voice. I'm you know, from band, I like Star Wars. And what's funny is now I'm getting more writings on chamber music than anything else. <laughs> uh, so James Aikman wins again. So those two years with him really set a foundation. And then Eric Santos was also big on, he mentioned it too. Now he wasn't a strict loaner, probably because Aikman laid that foundation. Um, but he, Santos was big on economy and also not necessarily having a humility when you write your music. He was really big on that. And so, so when you come from a place where you got seven, eight teachers, and then you go, most other places after that only have one composition teacher. Right. And that was really, that was really different when you go from such a big, you know, almost conservatory type place to everything else. Um, although with Dr. Weston, that wasn't a problem either. But um, when I went to LSU, uh, Dr. Constantinidis, or as he's officially known by Dinos, as we called him, um, he was really big on uh, vertical alignment, which was a good technique. And that, I think that was the last thing I really needed to help me, especially in my, not necessarily my chamber music, but in my orchestra writing, because he always wanted to see some development vertically and how you, or what he sometimes, or what I label as opening and closing doors mm -hmm. with, uh, uh, with the music. Because his belief, if when you measure time, time goes up and down, but you also see the vertical as it goes horizontally. So Interesting. he was really big on that. So do you think there was a, a concept or a, a technique that was particularly difficult for you to grasp? I think he was, he was huge on a lot of atonal writing. And that's not a style that really speaks to me. Mm -hmm. Although the beauty of atonality is that itself is economical. It's built in to be economical. Yeah. Because you have to develop your, your motive or your role. You have to do it because then that's it's not twelve tone if you don't. Right. So I wouldn't say it was difficult, but orally it, it doesn't have that same sensation for me listening to it than if I'm listening to say an Eric Whitaker piece, you mm -hmm. know, or Rudor or any other vocal piece. So and so that for me it was the hardest, not the hardest to grasp, but the hardest is to have that discipline. Right. Finish the piece out. So I know you've got a couple pieces in your catalog uh, based on biblical stories. Mm -hmm. uh, Ruth and Boaz, Joshua and Caleb. Mm -hmm. uh, do your religious beliefs play a central role in your life and in your compositions? Definitely in my life. Uh, I became a Christian actually about a month into my freshman year. Hmm. Um, October 22nd, 1995. So when you actually... For me, reading the Bible, reading it in entirety, you know, numerous times, you you understand how to shape your life for those who call themselves Christians. 
And so understanding these stories and knowing that the gifts I have come from God, I, for me, it's just a humble gift and sacrifice to give to my, my Lord and Savior to write stories. No, not to write, to write music, exemplifying these biblical stories for him. So that's why there are a lot of choir pieces that that are sacred. And so I try to write band music that's sacred. Of course, that's not everything that I write too. Right. But I just want to make sure that, hey, when you see this, like, God, this is for you. Yeah. I've got one more question before we take a, a break. So you're director of bands at Morehouse College. So exactly. how is how is the balance for you between teaching and composing? Do you find time for both? Uh, so generally, I pretty much shut down ship November because being in a SIAC conference, our last game is generally either the last weekend of October or the last week of November mm-hmm. after, after that first full week of November. So there's really not a lot of time for me to, to divest in my uh, composition portfolio. But generally, once Christmas break hits, and I usually get two or three weeks, I'll write some things then. And then because I have concert band second semester, and generally I may write a piece for my ensemble, mm-hmm. I usually take that time to write. And then I, I'll work on my classical music and my R&B stuff during that time. Uh-huh. But, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, marching band is a virus. <laughs> everything. And you can't, it's not, you can't do marching band and compete with anything else. Yeah, yeah. And, it, <laughs> and it's hard for me because I teach four of the, well, five of the classes along with that. So I don't have that daytime break that some of my colleagues have to compose like I want to. So what I have to do is, like if I get 10 or 20 minutes, I'll write it down or I'll record myself singing it or I'll record myself playing it so I won't forget. And then you'll just look at my computer and it says works in progress. And I saw if I need to go back to my vault. Um, but to answer your question, it's hard. It's, it's it just it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely believe that. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will explore some of Chad's compositions. Welcome back. My guest today is Chad Hughes. All right, so let's start with Tale of Two Fools. So we talked about this piece earlier. Uh, so I wanted to address sort of the more practical side of the piece. How long How long were you working on this from beginning to end? So I actually came up with the idea, uh, what, June 4th, 1996 was the first time I came up with this idea. And then I stopped and I was writing back and forth. But once again, I didn't... Um, I didn't write the script, so I kind of set it down. And I didn't really pick it back up until November of of, uh, 2011. And, but it wasn't much I could do because my classes were kicking my tail at LSU. And, but I was doing just little things just to, to keep it going. So that first year I would just do a couple songs and write the book at the same time. And, and still trying to, you know, maintain, you know, 12 credits of graduate studies. Um, and also I was, um, my minor was orchestral conducting. So I still had to learn these pieces for orchestra. You know, I tried learning Dvorak 8 at the same time. You're writing for 
uh, it'll write a tone of string quartet music. And then you got other theory classes that's kicking your tail. You got to analyze the whole rain cycle, basically. And, <laughs> and they're trying to write uh, 80, mil 80 minute work called a novel. So uh, I got it done in 2015. So by the time I re the, the revised thing that you see was done in 2015. But um, I mastered it myself and did a terrible job. So I pulled it and and worked on mastered again. And then I had a um, car Ulak in Estonia, actually. I, I met him online and he wanted to master it for it. So that's when I re-released everything late 2017, 2018. Okay. So what is your hope for this in the future? Where do you hope to see this go? Oh, man. I, I'm definitely going to make a stage version and make a movie version of it too. But I've also written, um, actually the audio book will be out hopefully by February next year. Oh, very nice. So then I've already written the two sequels after that also. Um, so it, it just will be a, a whole little uh, fun series. It's just awesome music. Um, and another purpose I wrote it too was to have, was to show people that you can have um, melodic development in R&B music. So actually at the end of the book, there's a little apprentice. It's not online, which I need to put it online. But I put all the most, well, you can see it here. Well, can you see this? <laughs> yeah, I put all the motifs that I use to compose it. So Very there's, nice. There's 14 uh, light motifs in the, in the novel. So the goal is just to show that you can have this development and tell this story um, using the same techniques that we learn in classical music. Yeah. All right, so we're going to listen to two pieces. I wish we could listen to all, what, 28? Uh, 25. <laughs> 25. Yeah, I wish we could listen to all 25 right now, but we're going to listen to part. I was 25 is because you can only fit 76 music, 76 <laughs> music on a CD. All right, so we're going to listen to parts of Alexandra's song and Dance Tonight. Do you want to set these two pieces up for us? Yeah, so Alexandra's song is the quote-unquote opening credits. So you just, that's kind of like your little a mini overture per se. And then Dance Tonight, which has three light motifs, I believe, in it, uh, is actually when Eli meets Alexandra for the first time. Okay. All right. So let's take a listen.
All right, so now let's go to Ruth and Boaz. So what attracted you to the story of Ruth and Boaz? Well, when I was re- when I read it for the first time in, I want to say, late 96, I just said, uh, once I found out that, you know, she was a grandmother the 10 times to David, that just really caught my attention. And I said, oh, that's why this is in the Bible. It makes sense now, you know? But you just see the word Ruth, you don't understand and her biblical connotation to the lineage of David, which of course is the lineage of Jesus. So once I read, I was just like, oh, but no one ever said anything like, you know, that this is co- this is connected to Jesus's, you know, line, lineage. So that's what's really connected to me. And once I read it, you know, learned about the Kinsman Redeemer, um, it just really stuck with me. I said, this is a powerful story. And this is a story of faith too. And it just always, you know, uh, this, this was perfectly etched in my memory bank. And that's what I did to do it, to write about it. So what is your process for writing a piece like this? Do you start with melodic fragments, uh, character motifs? Where where do you start? Um, it, you know, it, it differs from piece to piece, but generally I have three ways of composing, um, especially if it's programmatic, which most of my music is. Usually I have a, I'll have a, if I either come up with a story first that I want to say, or I have a melody first, or I might even have a section in my head. It's usually one of those three things. And if it's a story, even then, sometimes I might have an ending and then I have to develop it. Sometimes I might have a middle section, you know, and then sometimes I may have a beginning. So it just kind of depends what comes first. And if it's a story, I just make sure whatever it is, either A, B, or C, that I find a way. If I come up with B first, which I have several times, then I have to make sure I have a good A and a good C, obviously. It's like sonata form, you know, you got your mm-hmm. introduction, development, and recapitulation. Where a story is the same way, you got your introduction, development, and conclusion. So I try to make sure I have all three. And so then if I'm tying a melodic, uh, either a uh, light motif or a melody to whatever it, that it may be. Once again, the goal is to develop that as further as possible. But sometimes you just have to have a secondary uh, theme too. And you can even develop, you can even introduce four themes first without it being developed. It's just how you develop it for the rest of the pieces. It does, you know, there's several ways you can do it, but we tend to teach, develop this first before you introduce something new. Cause they don't, cause students don't have the maturity to understand, to come back to that bank of melodies. They want to keep, right. they want to give you 20 melodies in a piece and think you're doing something like, no, you can't, that doesn't work. Um, so I'll take the melody, develop it. And sometimes I treat it like you make in a row, um, um, you know, your atonal matrix. So sometimes I'll write it out and then I'll write some inversions, do some transitions and I'll do the, and I'll, uh, uh, recipro- uh, reciprocate it to see how it's looking uh, both ways. And then sometimes I look at it backwards, but I might not develop a true retrograde. Sometimes I may um, flip it over, retrograde it, and then I might do some other concoctions with that too, just to show, just to see how many other ways I can get out of it too. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, uh, let's listen to a bit of Ruth and Boaz uh, written for Concert Band. 
Okay, so next let's go to Thank You, Lord. So from what I understand, this piece happened as a collaboration between you and some high school classmates, Marcus Collins and Stephen Sneed. Oh, man, everything I've done, I like I said, my high school had 4,000 people, but I talked to somebody from my high school almost every day, whether it's on the phone or online. Wow. It's a wonderful experience um, at, at my high school. And so Marcus was class of 97 and Steve was class of 98 and I love those guys and so Marcus and I uh actually he saw me at the bus stop actually he was driving a little blue uh was a little blue escort and we talked about some music Uh, and to this day he says I brushed him off Uh, (laughs) (laughs) about that but we wound up reconnecting and um I went to the studio to do some recordings and we were roommates and I mean, the rest is history. And we we're both, you know, groomsmen into others. Well, it was just, um, it, it just, he's just a wonderful uh, brother. And so we tagged him a lot. And so Steve was, uh, it still is, has an awesome tenor voice, uh, just a natural, just pure tenor uh, voice. And when he does his falsetto, sometimes you can't tell he's in his falsetto because it's so smooth, he can go from his low end to his high end and you won't even notice a, a shift in his voice. And so we would just all come together and write music together all the time. And so when it's time to record the instrumental part, I pulled also a lot of people from my high school. So Marcus Brogre Jr. got his dad on there, Marcus Brogre Sr., and rest in peace, uh, Damon Warmack on bass. Um, so those are guys I just really turned to. And of course, uh, Jay Garrett Stewart did some of the engineering on it. So the same thing with the novel, uh, even though that was a mixture of folks from Cass, well, actually more so Detroit and LSU. So they're basically musicians from all over, uh, from two huge parts of my life. So I'm definitely grateful, especially like people like Kenneth Comerfeld, um, uh, Nick Fife, uh, Esther. I mean, there's so, there so many to name on there. I can't could possibly name them all right now. Uh, and that's how I was able to do the recording. So shout out to my city, Detroit, and shout out to LSU. And what about the vocalist on that track, uh, Sedalia Maria and Sarah D'Angelo? Where'd you find them? So Sarah uh, goes to my church. Uh, and then Sedalia, I, I briefly went to Bowling Green uh, for a year, uh, studied with... Um, um, Dr. Eleni Lilios and um, 
and Dr. Shrewd, who's wonderful teachers. Ah, wonderful, just impeccable teachers. And and the way I made Sadie, when we came in together and she had on a, uh, a Kentucky State University shirt when we were going to the library. And I said, oh, okay, HBU, HBCU, I see you. And what happened was, actually I was at Marcus' house and I said, you know what, we need to get Sedalia to sing on this. And he had never heard Sadie, so we brought her up and the rest was history. And we're still good friends to this day. And so that's, I asked him to sing on the song because the whole vision was to, I never did a video for it, but the whole vision was to get all the couples together. So me and my wife, uh, at the time, um, Sadie and, and her husband, uh, Sarah and her husband, we were gonna have this big couples video and we're all gonna say, you're my everything. So that, that's how it was supposed to uh, go for that. It just never happened. <laughs> all right, well, let's take a moment. We'll listen to a bit of Thank You, Lord. catalog the visions of a renaissance a symphonic tone poem about detroit so a renaissance is a revival or a renewed interest in something so is this a detroit renaissance something that you see as something that already happened or is this a present or a future thing that's a great question so i'm going to parallel with COVID. okay so we're all hoping that we can come back better than ever once it's over because everything everybody has been affected by this pandemic and we can't even go to concerts you know can't put together a choir really you know it's just really hard um, orchestra capacity is limited 
and what they do is is, in, is outside instead of inside. So we're all hoping for a great renaissance after this. And, and so with the economic collapse going on in the that was starting to happen in the early 2000s, and particularly with a lot of businesses um, leaving the United States going overseas, Detroit got hit harder than any other city. Right. Like it was just because layoffs were just so abundant because they closed all the plants. So you had a city that was built, this metropolis of a million people that was built on manufacturing. Well, you close the plants, the city doesn't have that type of uh, state national product to sustain the citizens because people will move to a city for really two or three things. They move for jobs, you know, schools and lack of crime. Well, if people don't have any jobs then, well, there goes the crime, right? So Detroit and is still suffering to this day um, for those things. And it's trying to, it's trying to find this way uh, where other cities have uh, worked out multiple resources. Um, like Chicago has multiple resources. New York has multiple resources. California has multiple resources too, but they have a lot of tourism because it's right on that ocean and you can't beat the beach there. And a lot of companies are there, you know, in California, Silicon Valley, the movies are all there. Florida's biggest income is tourism. So as long as it's in the South and it's hot, people gonna always go there. Well, Detroit's in the North, so it doesn't have, the job scene is really harsh there. So I wrote this piece hoping for, uh, it was my dream, my vision to have a rebirth of my city. Because at mm -hmm. one point in time, Detroit was the number five city in population wise in the state. Yeah. In all the states and now it's i don't even want to think about where it is right now it breaks my heart um so that's kind of my hope so it kind of ties in with the COVID situation because i'm hoping for a renaissance of everything um in the united states whenever hopefully we can get a vaccine and hopefully we can get this thing under control because it's going crazy right now yeah that's a that's a great way to view sort of the situation we're going through looking forward to a renaissance so how do you go about capturing the complexities of a city like Detroit in music? What what elements of the city were you trying to capture there? Uh, well, you know, being in Seattle, I-5 is a hot mess during rush hour. <laughs> and even when they were doing, you know, what we call what the big dig in the West, in the west which parallels... Um, Boston big dig and they were getting rid of the viaduct there. Traffic was terrible. So just imagine cars just bustling up, you know, down, trying to get away and finding detours because you can't go the way you would normally do because they're digging a hole through the city. And that's kind of like my vision was catch in the morning. But then everybody trying to go downtown, but then everyone's leaving and the sun is setting. But then people come back at night for the nightlife, you know, whether it's check out the festivals, the fireworks, because all the, the jazz clubs in Detroit are still wonderful. Um, they, they're quite plentiful, actually. So that's kind of how I vision the, the kind of ABA, ABAB form that it has, even though the second B is, is a lot shorter. Um, and, and so that's what I tried to do to capture that. So I use it. So this kind of piggies back to the question you asked me earlier about technique and how do I compose is like, sometimes I think of the form also, 
So in this case, it's, you know, binary. Uh, and then I use that to kind of dictate how I, um, how I developed this particular um, programmatic piece of mm -hmm. my trade. Okay. Well, let's take a moment and listen to some of Visions of a Renaissance, a symphonic tone poem about Detroit. All right, so Chad, I know you said you, you're not composing a whole lot during marching season. What do you have, and what do you have in the plans? What What are you hoping to compose soon? Well, um, we didn't have marching band season because there was no football. Right. <laughs> so actually, I've been writing a lot. I have a, a piece I'm writing for. Um, uh, Rachel Parker's Childress um, of the, uh, or is it, I hope I didn't mess up her last name because <laughs> I've known her as Rachel Parker for so long since she got married uh, <laughs> for the Boston Symphony and writing her a, a solo horn piece. And I'm writing two cello suites for um, Timothy Holly and my friend Leo, who's also uh, on the East Coast. And I'm, just, I'm also finishing up a harp suite for my friend Maurice Drawn. The one I was telling you about that I started harp with, mm -hmm. and then um, I just got to uh, get a commission. Um, I, I won't, I can't say who quite yet, but um, a commission for uh, a double percussion concerto. Okay. All right. So, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, where are you online? Where can we find uh, you? They can reach out to me at um, any social media platform at w or go to my. Um, website at www.serwickmusic.com. I am all my handles are the same way. So youtube.com slash music, uh, 
Instagram is Sirwick Music and Facebook is Sirwick Music. Nice and easy to remember. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad Sirwick, for joining me today. Uh, thanks thank for, for jo- having me. It was such an honor. And once again, like your your music, it speaks for itself. I didn't check out his music, man. <laughs> well, thank you very much. My guest today was composer Chad Sirwick Hughes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. If you would like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Sir Wick, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.